Hey, this is JR. And this is Mike. And this is FinOps Pod. Oh, it's better than first time. Again. <laughs> Couple of guys. You want to start? Hey, this is Mike. And this is JR. This, this is FinOps Pod. <laughs> it does get harder the more times you try it. Count like one second. So when soon as you stop, count one and then stop. All right. This is Hi, JR. This is Mike Fuller. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and we are FinOps Pod. Hi, I'm Stacey Case. And I'm Joe Daly. And this is FinOps Pod. And this is FinOps Pod. I got to it first. Stacey. Joe. So, you know, the first time we recorded JR and Mike, they like nailed the intro. Oh, yeah, really yeah, yeah. Well, but I screwed it up. And they had to re record the mm-hmm. intro and they, they couldn't get it right. They kept screwing <laughs> it up. Can you grab the old intro or was the sound not great? No, it was, it's all murdered. It's all awful. But it was great. So I'm keeping it as... This is a, now a true crime podcast. True crime. How did the audio get screwed up? Well, let's talk about that, Joe. This week's podcast is with J.R. Starman and Mike Fuller talking about the FinOps book that they've written, the second edition of it, which is the real title. What is it? Cloud FinOps, Collaborative Real-Time Cloud Value Decision Making. And... Just like it's the second edition of the book, it's also the second edition of the recording of the podcast because we actually (laughs) sat down (laughs) and recorded this once, you, myself, Mike, and JR, but there were some technical issues that weren't discovered until post-production and it required recording again. I will take full responsibility here. Well, look, I'll take full responsibility, but I know the reasons and the reasons were not me, but I did create the incident that ruined all of the audio. But, you know, we logged in and Mike Fuller, I don't know, something was up with Mike's login and his setup. So I started clicking buttons. I mean, I'm not blaming Mike. I'm blaming (laughs) myself. I want to make this perfectly clear. I am blaming myself. It's funny because it doesn't really sound like you're blaming yourself. It sounds like you are blaming other people. I'm just saying if Mike could log into the recording software, like everyone else has successfully logged into it. Maybe you wouldn't have clicked on other buttons. (laughs) Yeah, so I shouldn't have clicked the buttons. I should have just let it go. But unfortunately, I clicked the button and then it's just the audio was just it was all echoing through JR's speakers mm. and then getting re-picked up in the microphone. So it was just like this never ending echo effect. And it was miserable. And I was sitting down to edit it. I was really looking forward to it because it was a really great interview. You did a great job. Thank you. They came off as really endearing about how writing the second edition challenges of doing that and what it felt like. And that was really good the first time. Actually, in the second time, it's really good too. Okay, I'm going to pause you before you start digging yourself into a hole right there. I am going to say when I yeah. found out that it had to be recorded again, I went full diva mode. Do you know who I am? <laughs> I can't be bothered to record this again. My agent says I only have to record it one time. If you didn't catch yeah. it the first time, 
that's on you. My talent has been already used up. So I chose to not <laughs> interview them. And that was why. It was full diva mode. It had nothing to do with scheduling or the fact that Rob Martin is so incredibly amazing. He actually contributed to the lot of the book, had already read the second edition like I had not done at that time. It had nothing to do with that, but more that I just went to full diva mode oh. and said I couldn't be bothered. We had a few options. We had the, you know, hire voice actors to mm. read the transcript and play each of the roles of playing you and JR yeah. and Mike. The actress I wanted to play me wasn't available, which was unfortunate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, then we could have re-recorded with the three of you, but then Diva Mode turned on. Mm -hmm. And we went to Rob Martin. Rob Martin did a great job filling in. What really came up in this process is how many times when you're talking about a book about FinOps, that animals come into play. It's weird. And it's not just the O'Reilly cover, although the O'Reilly cover is one of the topics of animal discussions that came up. But there was some more towards the end. I won't ruin the surprises. I'm so sad I wasn't a part of it then. A conversation about animals, and I was not involved. They not the cute and cuddly no. goats that live in your farm. <laughs> in your fields. These ones are scary animals. Well, if you weren't excited to listen before, now that you hear they're scary animals, I actually am intrigued and cannot wait to hear about the scary animals Look. and how they relate to FinOps. Look. <laughs> Look, folks, if a massive update to a book about cloud financial management isn't your cup of tea, how about we add some scary, dangerous animals to the conversation? So this was the second edition of the interview of the second edition of the Cloud FinOps book written by J.R. Stormont and Michael Fuller. Enjoy. Enjoy. Thanks, FinOpers. Enjoy the interview. And now this. FinOptonauts. I'm excited to talk to both of you guys today about the book. The second edition Cloud FedUp's book. And I'm going to start with the cover because it is a different subtitle than the last one. We changed from collaborative real-time cloud financial management to collaborative real-time cloud value decision-making. Talk to me about the background on that. Well, first of all, Rob, I'm glad you noticed that tiny subtle change because most people haven't. Background was that I think when we were starting this process in 2018, early 2019, Nobody really knew what FinOps was, and the most common term in the space was cloud financial management. So we felt we really needed to get that on there to clarify. You know, FinOps as a concept became much more well-known, so we felt we, we had more flexibility this time around with that subtitle. And not to tease something you're probably going to ask about later in terms of new concepts in the book, but in this edition, we did end up changing unit economics to really not being the end of the FinOps lifecycle, not the Nirvana stage, but it being really an input to what we considered really is the Nirvana stage of FinOps, which is data-informed decision-making about cloud value, right? Not about spending less, not about just getting to unit economics because unit economics on their own are just a tool. And we really want to change that to be more about the, the actions you take on the back of that. That was one of those sort of last-minute changes. I don't know, Mike, any other context that you're thinking of? I think that was most of the story. Yeah, I think we, I mean, we did try and change the animal on the cover, but O'Reilly wouldn't let us. We had to change something, right? But yeah, I think it was really just us really wanting to signify the signal how important the value-based decisions was within the new edition of the book. So starting from the front cover and then right through, you will notice 
as you're reading the second edition, how much we've emphasized that as a really important part. And, and Mike was not even kidding about the animal. We went on a long campaign in 2018 and again this year to try and, what was the thing you wanted, Mike? It was something dangerous. Yeah, like this deep sea fish thing. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, it was the anglerfish. Anglerfish, that's it. Hideous thing on all the drafts of the book. We had this scary fish with a light hanging over its mouth. And O'Reilly was like, nah, you don't really get a say in that. Do you think O'Reilly publishes a book about blue-headed sunbirds with you two on the cover? <laughs> Anthropomorphizing the writers. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, if they don't, I'm going to go copyright that right now. <laughs> so the second edition, what was the catalyst for rewriting the book? The original book came out in 2019. It's now 2023. What's changed in the intervening time and what's been added to the canon? I guess it was like long enough time had gone past that we should got the amount of effort it takes to write a book. That was number one. But no, I think that there's been a few things that changed over the last few years. The conversation has progressed. You know, in the first edition of the book, it was very aspirational about where this could go and what we think that it looks like when it's fully built out across the industry. And I think we're at a point now where we're seeing fairly wide adoption of FinOps and the things that we really wanted to get in the first edition, but just time compression didn't allow us was to get a lot more of those real world stories. And in the second edition, we've gotten, you'll notice if you have read it or if you're going to read it, look out for those real world story boxes, because we wanted to just turn it from the theoretical to this is actually happening and hear from your colleagues and your peers in this industry that, that are doing it. Yeah. Painful decision to decide to go back and do it. And I think we batted around a few times over the last few years and, you know, where I was like, nope, nope, not going to do it. Mike reached out at some point randomly on Slack and was like, I think I'm ready to do the next edition. But the interesting thing when we went back, I think was two things. One that a lot of the core concepts hadn't really changed. Like we talked about, was there going to need to be an update to the Venice principles? Would we talk about how the levers had changed or how the overall structure of how you start to think about this? And a lot of that stayed really true to form. And we talked to a lot of different people. In the last four years, yes, it became more popularized, but we realized what was really missing was those stories that Mike mentioned, whereas a lot of the stuff was conceptual in 2019. The hard thing we had in this edition was deciding when to stop adding new stories because we would keep hearing, oh, we saw this person actually do a talk on the FinOps slot. We should grab that. Oh, we saw this person do a talk at FinOps X. Oh, that's a great story. We actually have a whole new chapter in the book that about half of it is summarized from a talk at FinOpsX. It was that good. And the other thing that stood out with it, it was that there were a few concepts that had evolved, specifically cloud provider rate optimizations. When we were working on the first edition, we heard through the grapevine under NDAs, which I'm no longer under, that things like savings plans from AWS were coming, but we couldn't talk about those publicly because they weren't yet announced. And we were able to flesh out a bit more in those areas. And then we actually, finally, we ran into the same concept issue with this one, which was things like Google Flex CUDs and Azure savings plans were coming out right as we were publishing this. So we had to thread the needle on timing about what we could talk about and whatnot. In 2019, the community also was what, a hundred, couple hundred people? It was 300. And now it's over almost 9,000? Over 9,000? Yeah, I think I just saw, we're looking at the deck from our summit that's happening uh, on Thursday and we're going to hit 10,000 probably next month, which is kind of crazy. No surprise. There's so many more stories. As you were writing, I got a chance to read some of the early drafts of the new chapters, but yeah, it seemed like the core concepts were staying mostly the same, but there was a lot more embellishment around them. That's really awesome. Some of the new sections as well. I love the new UI of FinOps that talked about the reporting and the ability for FinOps to, to be the user interface for your cloud use. Talk a little bit about that chapter. I know, Mike, that was one that they worked on. Yeah, a lot of what we build as a practitioner is that data and presenting it and representing 
information to your local community and your business. And after a few renditions of building different reports, uh, I could see that the way you structure those reports really influences what, what people take away from them. And so it became a real sort of thinking point on my own part to think like how the way we're building these interfaces, these reports really does influence how successful you are at FinOps. And then once you start digging into that topic area and getting um, stories from others around how they're thinking about their reports, and then it connects on to some of those psychological things around humans. And um, this sort of stems off of a conversation I had from a large Bay Area company a few years ago where we were collaborating around the challenge of empower engineers to take action. And um, he was sharing a, a little bit of a story of his own. His father had been many years in um, the Bay Area working in tech companies. And he went home to his dad and he was talking to him about this cloud problem that he had and trying to get engineers to, to action these recommendations and stuff. And his dad started laughing at him and said that you don't have a new you know, cloud fandangle um, modern problem. You have an age-old problem of getting people to do things that you want them to do. And so I think it was that sort of conversation that sort of stead the idea that actually it's the way we present information and what information we're presenting that actually can influence the way people feel and think about your problem domain. Mike, what was the name of the, um, the gentleman? Oh, Deming. Was it Edward? I'm forgetting the name. The, the guy with Edward the Deming. Experience. Edward Deming. Yes. Yeah. So we came across randomly some of his writings from like the seventies and eighties. And to Mike's point, uh, you know, the story of there's not really a new problem here. It was staggering to see how Deming had defined a lot of these management principles and things that had to do with how you get an organization to change and transform and the aspects of it needing to be from the top and from the bottom. And a lot of these things came through at the UI of FinOps. And it's really, FinOps is a human discipline and it's about getting different people to work together. And a lot of the psychological concepts, hat tip to Mike, for that chapter, right, around uh, anchoring bias, around Hicks Law and all these things that apply generally, we realize the game of convincing people to take actions and to building trust, right, in data, trust in other teams, trust in reporting systems. And that was, I think, a really, really interesting add to this. That's cool. I got the name wrong, too. W. Edwards Deming. Was there the, we go. Uh, it was close, so close. And that language change, we see that in State of FinOps survey that has gone out for three years now, that we're getting engineers to take action or making engineers take action or supporting engineers and taking action book. It is partnering with engineers to take action. That language has really changed the way. And a lot of that has to do with realizing, I think, that the engineers are at the pointy end of the FinOps equation, right? They're doing the work. They're the ones who are doing that. It's not that they're being malicious and trying not to do things that are beneficial for the company, but actually it's, we're basing so much more around trying to give them the information, putting data in the path of the engineer to support them with the right decision-making, kind of going back to the original value-based decision-making subtitle. Yeah. And that's one of the things that was really striking for us I, when we did go back and reread it at the point of considering whether to do the second edition, it, it really stood out how much there was an us versus them tone in relation to talking about engineering teams. And one of the things that has changed considerably, I think in the last four years of evolution of the FinOps practice is that it's moved from being a retroactive practice, largely instigated by the business side of the house to try and get costs down or, you know, hopefully find inefficiencies to really being a more proactive part of an engineering practice that is considering costs from the architectural design standpoint, from ongoing processes as they're doing sprints, rather than, you know, being chased by a CFO with a stick to go turn things off. It's become a practice that is more integrated and significantly so into 
engineering teams, also into finance teams. And it's something that has elevated. And notably, you know, it was during COVID that we were doing most of the writing, all the shutdowns. We had that acceleration of adoption of cloud during COVID. And we also had an accelerated focus on efficiency, which really caused the conversation about ThinOps to move from the edges of the folks in cloud to really the center of conversations for, you know, CTOs, CIOs, CFOs at the Fortune 500, because cloud was suddenly a major material part of spend and everybody was really trying to think about how do we get the most value out. So the aspect of partnering with engineering teams was probably the hardest chapter. And frankly, we went through a number of different rewrites on that. Do we talk about it from the concepts of what engineers need to understand to be efficient in cloud? Do we talk about it or something else? And we landed on this aspect of uh, getting into the heads of engineering teams and the constraints under which they operate and the prioritization issues that they have and ensuring that we're providing a better framework, whether you're in engineering or in a joining practice to really get collaboration, get progress made in that area. And the talk I mentioned earlier from FinOpsEc that we referenced so much was a guy named Gabe who worked at Apple and he did a talk all about how engineering is a discipline that is really fueled by constraints and engineers get restraints in the software development process that really define how they work and the ways in which they work and cost is just another constraint that can actually lead to more innovation and more interesting hard problems to be solved because now you need to solve these challenges within this new constraint. And so we really tried to build on that to look at, you know, why there was an issue in the previous years with getting insurers to take action to how do you actually work to partner and unlock more movement there? Yeah, there's so much more. I think FinOps has always been about collaboration, right? You need collaborators first uh, principle of FinOps, but there's so much more collaboration and partnership discussion in the book. You've talked a little bit about the partnering with engineering to get them moving. There's also intersection with other frameworks. There's a lot of other frameworks that are talked about in the book, IT financial management frameworks and ITM frameworks. Sustainability was one that got its own whole chapter. There seems to be a broad movement of integrating FinOps with more and more of the different disciplines and departments in organizations that are using cloud more effectively, is that going to continue to happen? I think this is just a uh, result of FinOps becoming more resolved and settled into organizations. The more it settles in and connects with more and more teams and more and more sort of functions of the business. And so we really did want to emphasize the fact that there are commonalities across different areas like TBM teams and the ITFM. There's benefits both ways for these and making sure that we emphasize the fact that, you know, it's not just a one-way street that FinOps helps one way or that they help FinOps. It's actually a collaboration between the two where they resolve some of the, the challenges of the pace of cloud for some of those other frameworks and teams in the orgs. And then at the same time, it helps FinOps to become more part of the natural business system that's happening inside of an organization. So I feel like the more we're seeing these integration points is just FinOps settling into its position. That aspect of business integration that Mike mentioned is really spot on because we moved from, should I be doing this thing, FinOps, cloud financial management, cloud optimization, whatever it is, to, okay, we're doing it. We have to be doing it now. How do we make it helpful, supportive, integrated into other parts of the business and other business processes from finance to engineering to everywhere else? So that, that was definitely a big shift in the last few years. So one of the other big sections that was new in the book was the framework chapter. And it started to talk about the FinOps framework as a holistic thing that exists on the FinOps Foundation website and is trained through the FinOps training. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between the book and the Foundation website and the FinOps training with respect to the framework? 
Yeah, I think the inclusion of the framework chapter was intentional just to make sure that the book highlighted the fact that's the way the foundation thinks towards the way to build a good practice, the way to think about capabilities, the way to think about domains. And so the chapter in the book is really just explaining what the framework is, how to think about it, how to start using the framework in the in your own practices. And so it's not meant to cover the individual details of the framework that are hosted on the finops.org website. It's really just to build awareness that it is there and that these are the components that make up the framework. And here's how to think towards using that resource in building your own practice. And we find that folks coming in now are dealing with a couple different challenges. A lot of the work we did in the early days of the foundation and a lot of the initial best practices we put out, were really just rolling up sleeves to the how of FinOps. Like how do I start to think about forecasting? How do I start to think about rate efficiency or usage efficiency or any of those related concepts that are in the framework as capabilities, a lot of the conversation has also shifted to how do I get organizational adoption of the practice? How do I get executive support and mandate to do this? And you know, we, we talk about Mike's own journey in the book. It was, I think we call it the, it was a FinOps confession that came up. We were working on some of the chapters and he kind of admitted to me over one of our, limp, our numberless Zoom sessions that when we did the first edition of the book, you know, he, he was working at Elastane at the time. He realized they weren't really doing it in the way that they're doing it now. It was off to the side a bit. It didn't have the deep adoption. It didn't have executive buy-in. And a lot of the work that Mike, you shared started that conversation we're seeing in the community now is how to get everybody bought on so they can start to staff teams and make this a core part of processes. And so much of the relationship between the book and the foundation, the FinOps training, is to tie together. There's a technology piece of how do we get better at cloud. There's a people piece. How do we get people upskilled and up-leveled and in seats? And then there's a process organizational piece of how do we fit this in? And we've tried to thread the needle between all of those without also going too deeply in any one because we were trying to make this version fairly evergreen in terms of things that wouldn't change in the coming years. There are a few new concepts in there. I'm uh, thinking of informed ignoring is a, a concept that was that was brought up in this one. The action scale that sort of judges when to take action and when to let things sit. And those are probably driven mostly around experience in the actual world of not being able to do everything in your finance practice all at once. Yeah, I think especially if you look at the comparison of the first edition and second edition of the book, and I think what we've seen just generally about the way we talk about FinOps in the community, when we started out, we're really talking about the ideals, the what's the perfect outcomes. And the reality of business is when it gets out there and implementing FinOps is that there, there are reasons why you don't do certain things. You might leave certain optimizations and optimize. You might be choosing to trade off a, a bit of early speed in inefficiency. And, and so informed ignoring is really just the concept that it's okay to do those things, to make those choices, as long as you're informed about the impacts that they're having, you know, just choosing to ignore spend in cloud is not a good solution, but being informed about where your efficiency is at and the impact that you're having by making some of these other decisions and being informed of that and continue to measure what that impact is and then making the decision just to ignore those opportunities and making a decision later on, effectively you're informing the choice to kick the can down the line versus just kicking it down the line and worrying about what it looks like later. As Getty Lee once said, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Yes. Yeah. And that's what came out to that story of, you know, Mike air quotes admitting to me that he wasn't really doing FinOps a few years back was that it wasn't because they didn't have the expertise or the, any of those areas or weren't aware of what needed to be done. It was that they were making choices about delaying certain parts of growth of the capabilities of the practice. And we see this time and time again with people in the community coming in, they look at the framework and there's 16, 18 capabilities and it's, well, how do I, where do I start? What do I need to tackle? What can I wait on? And 
the idea is not that you should be trying to boil the ocean, but you should be picking the things that are most relevant to the business, right? If you're in that early stage of migration, it's probably the forecasting. If you're later stage, it might be more about the efficiency, but making informed choices to ignore the things that you can't do because SynOps practice takes really years to get to a run stage. Again, back to the value-based decision-making, right? It's all about making the right decisions for the business and not just in your cloud spending all over the place. You may be getting much more value out of closing that data center or launching that new product than taking other specific action. That's so true because I feel like in that sort of 2017 to 2020 era, when a lot of these concepts were first coming together, there were so many people just rushing to get out of data centers and making migrations that so many times I talked to people in the community who were spending millions, tens of millions of dollars, and they really did not care about the waste. They wanted to move as quickly as possible because, yeah, to your point, closing that data center was more important. And then as they started to reach, air quotes, peak cloud, it became much more important to get into the weeds of ensuring the value was coming out. I want to ask more of a personal question. How was the actual editing of the book? How did that go? Give us some behind the scenes view of what happened during the editing process for those of us who haven't written the whole book before. The first time we wrote this, the first edition, we met with our development editor at O'Reilly. And, you know, we started to set timelines for things. And she asked us, how long do we think we'd take? She laid out a line of, you know, maybe a chapter a month. We laughed and said, oh, we're going to do a chapter a week. No worries. And that naivety turned out to be it wasn't so much a chapter a month, but they definitely did not do a chapter a week. And I think the second time around, we were just like, look, we just chuck a couple extra chapters in and do a quick refresh with the other content and call it a day. This should not be a big lift. And I think once we got started, we just saw everywhere where we could improve things and every story that we could add. And it just snowballs in this sort of amount of effort that these things take. And you always totally underestimate the amount of time it takes, but once you get started on something like this, you're really beholden to delivering a good product and you don't feel like it's okay just to cut a corner and cut a month out of effort. You just know that it's got to happen and you've got to just roll your sleeves up and push forward. I was chuckling as Rob was saying that just because Rob was one of our technical reviewers on the project. We had, I don't know, 80 or so contributors and probably, you know, 10 or 12 folks who were helping to review and make updates, but Rob was one of three who really dug in and we hit the stage in the editing where some of these Google doc drafts had more comments and revisions and suggestions than they did actual copy in the chapters. Yeah. Big shout out. And thank you to Rob. You reread and commented and proposed more thoughtful ideas than we could ever even begin to consider as part of that. But I think what was really interesting for me with this version of the book is the first time we were doing this, we didn't really know how much it was going to be read. And this time around, I was like, oh shoot, people are actually reading this. I really want to get this right. And it was hard going back and figuring out what to rewrite and keep. And also shout out to the other two tech reviewers as well, Jason Rhodes from Intuit and Josh Bowman from Electronic Arts, who both stepped in with into a huge hornet's nest of comments and revisions and made really quick changes to that. And yeah, thank you, Rob, in particular, for helping us get over the line. Are there any pages that are exactly the same? I don't think so. I think we've literally rewritten in some format every individual section of the book. Mike is really the brains behind this operation, so he would typically, you know, write the meaty stuff, then I would come through and try and make it prettier. But yeah, I think we touched almost everything. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see a diff actually if there was a page that was the same, but I think you're right, Jay, that the amount of markup that we had on every page of copy was, yeah, it was pretty, pretty intense. It was staggering. You got on a couple of people who contributed any of the big stories that you want to highlight? You know, I think one of the things I thought was cool that we could do this time around because we had the luxury of a lot of different options. Instead of just giving a story, in certain cases, we were able to give stories that disagreed with each other in the same section. That UI of the Ops chapter actually opens with kind of competing stories of Kim Weir at Target 
they decided to build all their tooling in-house and gives the reasons why they did that. And then we juxtapose it against a story from, I think, Lindbergh from Lindbergh, Montiano, yeah. Yeah, who described why they decided to buy. And then someone else went back and forth. And that was really cool to have that ability to say, you know, Rob is famous for saying it depends in the FinOps trainings. There's no right answer to some of these things. There's a, a menu of options. Likewise, we got a lot of great concepts from folks like I mentioned Gabe Hegg from Apple, his partner, Kyle Benjamin Coles contributed heavily to the partnering of the engineers perspective. And I love their story because well, everybody knows Apple and you can imagine the scale of cloud spend they must have given all they do. But that team was coming at it from the perspective of a set of engineers who actually work under the CFO and how they were being really the, the stewards of stories and practices to go around to different engineering parts of their organization and help them think about this through a different lens. Our fearless podcast host, Joe Daly, a few of his stories in the first edition made it through. We had that Jay, he's now formerly at Nationwide, now part of the FinOps Foundation, but he has some great stories in there. I'm sure he would love to sign a copy of your book or the book. <laughs> you see him at one of our events, but really there were, there were just so many I'm flipping through and like every page has a story in here. Can't even begin to list out the number of people who contributed, but we were so just honored that people across the board that people were willing to contribute. We were asking people sometimes in a rush, hey, we've got to get this chapter done. You know, can, do you mind sharing this story? And almost inevitably people would say, yeah, definitely. Um, There's just so many people who stood up and shared. I think the big thing about those stories from the cloud is they allow a particular tone of voice that the main content of the book just doesn't allow. If you sort of mix storylines in amongst the, the main copy of the book, it's hard for you, the reader to understand when you're being told a story versus you're being told content. And then changing it from just the Mike and JR voice, but actually having the real world people coming and telling a story in that call out box from their perspective and where it supports a piece of content, the main copy. I just, I really like the value in those is obviously the story itself, but we spent a lot of time actually picking exactly where in the book we put those stories. And there's some yeah, of those stories that could fit four or five times, right? And we try to pick like, this story really helps you understand this section of the book. We need to put it here and amongst this, nestle it in amongst this content, but also not just have it blended into the main copy. So it's really emphasized. And that was interesting as part of the technical reviewer process. I forget which of the two guys. It was Jason Rhodes and Josh Bowman. They both put in so many interesting comments. And Rob, you two going through there where sometimes it was like a disagreement with what we were saying, or sometimes it was a yes and or a it depends. And in many cases, we found rather than trying to just say, hey, this is the way that it's done, we just take that opinion perspective, right, from Jason into it or Josh EA and just drop it in as a story in the cloud because we did see and we have seen so many cases now that we've, you know, Mike and I have each, I guess, in this area space for probably almost 10 years or more each. You know, one company will do forecasting or team structure or, you know, reserved management one way and another do a different way, sometimes the same person, a different company. And it really comes down to the business conditions and the state of overall goals, right? And there isn't one true path. And largely what we try to do in this book is provide a better decision framework for where to choose the right actions, right? For where your organization is. Right back to the decision-making. It depends. Yeah. And I think it's really a testament to the community that you both have really built here, it's not, you know, JR and Mike telling you how to do FinOps. It's JR and Mike explaining how this community has come together to learn to do this job really well and in a really rich way. And it was very exciting to have all the people involved in that technical review, you know, kicking in stories and kicking in their own ideas and, you know, yeah. saying, yeah, this is right. But then there's this other thing that goes along with it. You end the book with chapter 27. You are the secret ingredient. And I would say Kung Fu Panda is too seldom quoted in the business world. 
today, I think, but the idea that you've got, that every person who practices FinOps really has that, I guess, organizational, you know, knowledge about how their company has got to work or how their organization got to move forward. And then that feel for what they're using and can then make a difference in, in how, how that happens. Every individual's challenge and path is going to be unique, but this provides some of the guideposts for how to make that journey. Yeah. And that was the thing It's called action to your point of that last chapter. It was a fairly late addition because we were looking at how to end things, but what has really come up repeatedly is just how the industry is lacking enough skilled people to do the job of FinOps now, given the demand. And that's really our, was our call at the end, right? Was to for folks to go out and get involved, to contribute to the candidate knowledge for future editions and to help tell the story of where this needs to go and how to you know, build the next version, the next generation of FinOps practices. And as we put in the first edition, and it's just as true now, like FinOps is an evolving practice. It's not done. It's not really going to be done for a while. We're at this cool stage where people can spend some time in their roles, come to the community, work in working groups, contribute through certification programs, show up and talk at events, and they can shape where this practice that is becoming, you know, mainstream now, where we've got nine at Fortune 10 and pretty much any large enterprise doing it. So that was really great to see. My favorite quote from that section was not the Kung Fu Panda, but I think the Silio Marconastasakis from our team shared this, but it was in relation to where to start FinOps. And it was a Chinese proverb that goes, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And the second best time is now. So if I've got my copy of the book, where can I get that book signed? Well, of course you want to all go to FinOpsX, right? Yeah, that's a good call. Mike and I have not seen each other since 2019. In fact, I think it was, Mike, was it before? It was right after, I guess, the first edition of the book published. So we're going to be back together for the first time at FinOpsX in San Diego this June. So we would love to sign books. And also, maybe we should do like a scavenger hunt for getting as many signatures there because there's probably going to be 25 or 30 people who are quoted in the book at FinOpsX, including Rob Martin and Joe Daly and Kim Weir and Asher Mako and all those folks. I'll be signing page 41 for anyone who's interested. Page 41. Yeah, we should give him a cheat sheet of who is at the event with, yeah. It'd be like the high school yearbook edition. You can get every page signed. Okay. These are my lightning round questions for you guys. First question is, so this book is about financial operations? Nice troll. Yes. It's, it's a definition that we want to really make sure that's emphasized. Even the foundation has tried to do a lot to emphasize that this is not financial operations. We have an intentional portmanteau finance and DevOps and the definition that is on the website is the one that we should be leaning on and making sure that we repeat. So if anyone out there is still using financial operations means we're not so time to correct that so we can stamp that out. Just remember portmanteau. Portmanteau. And the next edition of the book will, I'm sure, describe what a portmanteau is for those who don't know. There we go. We're, we're uh, chapter. Next question is, were any giant spiders involved in the writing of this book? Oh my God. That is such a good question. Yes. So many spiders. So Mike lives in Australia on a farm and I did a lot of the writing from Joshua Tree, California. So we had, in my end, we had competing uh, dead tarantulas uh, and, and some living ones that would pop up outside. And then I remember this one time we were on an early morning call. It was probably I don't know, 4 a.m. for Mike and it was dark when we started the call. And then the light came up behind him on his window as dawn broke. And I saw this giant thing on his window to which I was like, what is that? And it was the most hideous looking Australian spider. So yes, unfortunately, lots of spiders involved. What were those swimming spiders you told me about, Mike, that you have there? Funnel webs, they like to swim in swimming pools. Ah, think of nightmares. Like to the bottom. Pretty crazy. Great. That's really making me want to go to Australia. <laughs> Poisonous swimming spiders. 
Yeah, poisonous wig spiders that hide behind you as the sun comes up. So when does the third edition come out? 2029. 2029. Oh, she's going to date. I think what's more important is, I don't think the third edition can be 600 pages. So yeah. what gets cut from the next edition? And I guess that's really just a hypothetical question for everybody is, like, where do we cut back on and not cover in this book, keep the value of this introduction style? And I think we are looking at this one as continuing to be a primer, right? It's not much go deeper and deeper. There's others that we've discussed and we've talked about in the community to get into different areas, but we see a, a third edition, I think, being an update of things that you need to know that have changed, not, you know, going to the end of how to do all the capabilities, which is where the community lives and the finops.org lives and the working groups live and all those other resources. Let me help you out here, folks. If you got your second edition of the Cloud FinOps book and you want me to sign it, have page 336 ready. That's the page I will sign for you. It has a little story about the time I accidentally took down production by leveraging automation. The only problem I have with this is that it refers to me as Joe Daly, formerly director of cloud optimization at Cardinal Health and Nationwide, and then tells the story about how I took down production. Just to make it clear, I am not the former director of cloud optimization of either of those two companies because I took down production. Hey, we all take down production sometimes. You know, it was by choice that I'm the former director of cloud optimization there. Go get yourself a copy of the second edition of Cloud FinOps Collaborative Real-Time Cloud Value Decision-Making. This is a significant update, folks, and it's a community update, too. There are so many stories directly from FinOps Pod or from members of the FinOps Foundation community. It's fantastic. If you are not yet a member of the FinOps Foundation community, go to finops.org, click Join the Community, and let us know. It'll be great to have you. It's a growing community and very giving and generous as this book shows. Thank you so much, J.R. Stormont, Mike Fuller, Rob Martin, Stacy Case, for both editions of the interview that we featured here today. Both were fantastic and great. Thanks for having patience through the technical difficulties and being such good sports about it all. Go check out our events. You can find the events on finops.org. We have roadshows coming up in Americas, in Europe. Also an event coming up in Australia. Don't forget FinOps X, the best investment you can make in your FinOps career and for your FinOps teams is sending them to FinOps X, two full days, FinOps content, four rooms, with back-to-back -back presentations on FinOps capabilities, stories, experiences, such great networking. And then we top it off with a party on an aircraft carrier. It's gonna be great. Hope to see you there. Go check out the details, x.finops.org. And with that, I'm gonna wrap it up for you. Thank you, FinOptonauts. Thank you, smooth Fin operators. Keep on FinOpsing.